And God bless all of you. Praise God. You may be seated. It's just so good to be here in the house of the Lord tonight. We're making this God's house, aren't we? Praise God. We were here last year and I felt so uh, welcome and so comfortable. And I was looking forward to coming being with you until I talked with Brother Legal and he told me Brother Urshan couldn't come. And uh, I got real nervous about it. Um, and I'm sure that you would understand, or you do understand, if you were called on to speak in Brother Urshan's place, you'd probably get nervous too, wouldn't you? So uh, if I appear to be real nervous tonight, it's because I am. Praise God. <laughs> but you folks are so easy to instruct and be with. Last year, I just fell in love with the Iowa district. I've known Brother Legal for some time now. He's just a great man of God. Brother George Tharp is a great man of God. Your district board, I've known many of these men for a long time, and we love and appreciate them. And I was just in Mississippi two weeks ago, I think. I saw Brother Phillips' father-in-law told me to watch out for him while I'm up here. So I've known Brother Charles James for a long time. His brother pastored our church in Henderson, Texas, when I started in the ministry. And Brother Sutterfield uh, came up to Madison and married a girl from our church. And and, uh, so the Lord's looking out for his household from way of Madison. So. (laughs) <laughs> Praise God. Really good to be here. <clears throat> Brother Legal comes up to Wisconsin quite often for fishing. I got a fishing story, fish story to tell. Uh, Brother Legal. I'm from Texas originally, and they say that uh, there's a way that you can tell if a fisherman's lying. Uh, the way you tell is that you watch his lips very carefully. And if they move, he is. <laughs> Brother Legal got me excited about taking a little vacation and going fishing, so we did. We came on the west side of the state near Minnesota. Brother Aaron, our district secretary, he's gone over to Lake Wabagasket several years in a row. Actually, about 15 years in a row. We had about nine of us over there fishing for a week, and we caught 1,300 fish. Believe that. I'm serious with you. We gave fish away and cooked fish for everybody around the lake and took home our limit. And, oh, I never, I haven't had any fish since. I don't even think I've had a fish sandwich since. Praise God. But we had a great time. Good to be here in Iowa. Last year, I think it was uh, not so wet. It seemed like we were needing some rain. But I understand you've had a little rain. Corn just looks so great coming over here. Last year I made a statement. I said I was a little bit nervous about coming because I read in the paper just the week before I came that the average resident of Iowa had a, a higher IQ than any other place in the nation. And uh, all of you still look real smart. <laughs> and I certainly don't want to... Uh, to embarrass 
myself, my wife, you know, you come here and Brother Urshan's not here. and I, We have him scheduled to be in our home and in our church uh, for our dedication in about two weeks. I don't know if he can be with us or not. But he's just such a great man of God. Uh, he really is. And I just want to encourage you along with Brother Legal to pray for him. Because if I know Brother Urshan, he will not spend much time before he's back on the road. And that could be not the best for him. Uh, we, we need Brother Urshan. We really need him. I'm glad this is called a prayer and Bible conference because I'm not really a camp meeting speaker. Now, I've preached uh, in camp meetings. I've taught a lot in camp meetings. Now, let me just set the record straight before we get into this. There's really not much difference between my preaching and teaching. Usually, it's just the volume. Uh, and sometimes, I have a little problem with that, so I just have the sound man to turn it up a little bit. So It's pretty much the same. I was down in East Texas in uh, Brother A.D. Spears' church. And I, I mentioned something. I said, I just want to do what Brother Tenney said he do, does, and that's preach, a little teaching and a little preaching. And uh, one sister heard me say that, and I guess she got it mixed up. Because when I finished, she came up to me and said, Brother Grant, that was mighty good screeching tonight. <laughs> so we're going to screech a little bit tonight. <laughs> Praise God. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God. And I have conducted several meetings where I had the load for day and night and uh, sometimes in the afternoon. We were up in the Alaska district about well, several years ago and uh, we had three days of their conference and I, I kept track of the times they had me scheduled and I was scheduled 13 times in three days. I, I taught and preached 13 hours gave a presentation about their campground that they were going into, and then preached the weekend service for Brother Blackshear, flew out Sunday night to Kenai and preached over there. Now, prior to that, we thought we'd take a couple of days off and visit with Brother Blackshear, and we got up there. and He didn't have his building finished, so I, I laid 130 yards of inlaid linoleum. Needless to say, that's probably the toughest schedule I've ever had. But you know what? That was 10 years ago. Uh, I don't know if I could do that right now. <clears throat> Praise God. So you pray for me. If you would be so kind as to take your Bibles and turn to Romans, the 8th chapter, and stand with me. I want to talk about something that is very, very simple tonight, but yet something that I feel that God would want us to hear. Uh, before we read the scripture, I'm going to be talking somewhat about Satan. And I'm not too excited about talking about Satan except as it relates to the power of God or contrasts with the power of God. Sometimes Pentecostals get hung up on evil things. There was a tape that was being circulated among us several years ago by Mr. Todd, a lot of our people got a hold of it in Madison. Maybe some of you uh, heard it. Uh, 
Some people in our church got so excited about it, they tried to get me to listen to it. I get two or three tapes a week sent to me, asking me, would you uh, listen to this, and would you get back with me and tell me what you think? Well, I just stopped listening to all of them, because I can't do that. So I never did listen to, what's his name, John Todd or Mike Todd? I never did listen to his tape, but several people in our church got so excited about the devil that they couldn't sleep at night. Now, when I say excited, maybe I should say fearful of the devil. But the emphasis seemed to swing on the evil rather than on the good and the power of Satan rather than the power of God. I don't know enough about God, let alone about Satan. One new convert called me and she said, I can't sleep, she said. Things are happening. Uh, She said, you know, pictures fell off the wall. Several things happened. She she said, I'm I'm looking at the drape right now and it's breathing. Every morning she dropped out of her bed on her knees and peered over the bed to see if something. Something was about to grab her. I was scared she got. She said, I think it's the devil. Well, I told her, I said, Barb, I'm positive that it is. So don't worry about it. Just turn over and go to sleep. Because the Bible says he shall give his angels charge over thee. To keep thee in all thy ways. Praise God. And I believe just that. Let's look at Romans, the 8th chapter. And we'll take a look at verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Verse 31, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for us. You see, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, if I live within the boundaries of that scripture, everything that happens to me ultimately will be for my good. See, Christianity is the only religion in the world that teaches from every bad thing can, I said can, not does, but can, come something good. Paul went to this extent. He said, you can do nothing against the church, but for the church. Isn't that something? And then from Genesis, the 18th chapter, verse 14, I'll not even read all of the of the scripture. But Genesis eighteen fourteen is anything too hard for the Lord? Question mark. Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
You know, only God knows what can not be accomplished. Only God. And with God, all things are possible. Let's talk about if God be for us, who can be against us? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence and we commission the reading of the scripture and the preaching of the word into your hands. And we're asking right now, O God, that somehow every feeling of fear and doubt would leave, that it would dissipate. That the sweet spirit and presence of the Lord would come. We want to exalt your great name. We want to lift you up, O God. We're thankful, Lord Jesus, for this opportunity to hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name. Praise the name of the Lord. And everybody say amen. Amen. Praise God. And you may be seated. Praise God. We know that the, the word foreknow appears in Romans 8. And we also know that the word predestinate appears. Uh, there is a vast difference between the two. God knows everything. Past, present, and future. I mean, he knows everything. There are some things, however, that are fixed. And it remains that way and cannot and will not be changed. We know that when we interpret Bible scripture, that there is a particular way in which that scripture has to be interpreted. Before you can draw a conclusion relative to any Bible doctrine, you must first seek out all the evidences of the scripture, and a conclusion must be made only after all evidences have been looked at. Uh, Many false doctrines appear in religious circles today simply because people didn't consider all the evidences. The Trinitarian theory, for an example, is a major doctrine taught in so many churches, and of course it, it lacks Bible evidence because somehow somebody got an idea and considered a few scriptures but did not consider all of the scriptures. The same is true with the the message of baptism. To me, baptism in Jesus' name is one of the easier doctrines to prove in the Scripture. Now, if you want to consider one or two bits of evidences or bits of, of, uh, of Scripture, pieces of Scripture, and you don't consider all the evidences, then uh, you can draw a conclusion about baptism that would be in, in error. But if you look at all of the scripture, uh, then you come up with a different conclusion. This is also true when we look at uh, the word predestinate. and We find some names in the scripture. I do not believe, according to 
the scripture after considering all the evidences that any one person was ever born to go to hell. I do not believe that. Now, I do believe, however, that when the Bible says, for whom he did foreknow, that uh, the scripture is simply saying that, that in this particular case, that there are classifications and there are certain characteristics that you can have and keep and hold to, and if you have those characteristics, then naturally you will not be saved. Uh, to put it a little plainer, the Bible says that all sinners will go to hell. The Bible says that all the righteous will be in the presence of the Lord forever. So there are two classes of people that, that we can deal with. We deal with the saved and we deal with the unsaved. All of the unsaved will be lost forever and all of the saved will be in the presence of God. Now, I said all that to simply say this. The greatest privilege that I have as a man walking upon the face of the earth is that I can choose which class that I want to be associated with or I can choose whether I want to be saved or whether I want to be lost. The choice is mine. It's like a train that's going from here to Chicago. The track runs there. It runs, the train runs on the track every day. I can decide whether I want to get on the train and go to Chicago. The, the, the train is destined to go to Chicago. Now I can be on the train or I can miss the train. There is a train that's leading to damnation. You can catch that train if you want to catch that train. There's also a train that's leading to salvation and leading to eternal bliss in the presence of God. You can catch that train if you want to catch that train. This is what the Bible is talking to us about. So the power of choice is a doctrine that's taught in the scripture that is so very, very easy to understand and so important that we take advantage of it. Now, if we make the right choice, and that's what the scripture is saying, then what could keep us from being saved? If we choose God, what can keep us from being saved? The scripture is saying absolutely nothing can keep you from being saved because if you make the right choice, then God is for you. And if God be for you, then who can be against you? The choice is yours. Now it appears in the scripture that there never was a time or dispensation in which men did not choose. We know that Adam and Eve were given the power to decide. We know that after the first dispensation, the dispensation of human government in the days of Noah, 
We know that men were given the power to decide. We know that after that came the dispensation of promise. Men were given the power to decide. We go down through our particular day. We're given the power to decide. And the the whole beauty about holiness, as I see it, is that it's predicated upon choice. I am what I am because I choose to be this. Nobody made me come here. Nobody made me give my life to the Lord. Nobody makes me adhere to the particular lifestyle that I have. I am what I am because I choose to be this. Now even prior to the time in which uh, man was placed on the planet earth, we look at, take a look at the kingdom of God and we find out that uh, the angels were given the privilege to make a choice. Obviously they were. And for this reason, Lucifer, along with the third of all of the stars of heaven or the angels of heaven, chose not to serve God. Consequently, they left the kingdom of God. Now, there will be a dispensation that follows this dispensation. It's called the millennium. A thousand years of peace will be upon the face of the earth, and Jesus shall rule the earth with a rod of iron. It appears that men will live long lives, some living through the millennium, a thousand years. It also appears in the scripture that Satan, who is bound and locked in the bottomless pit for that duration of time, that uh, he is not going forth to tempt. Consequently, God takes away the, the, the power to decide. Nobody has a choice then. They just live for Jesus simply because that's the way it is. But there's a little glimpse in the scripture that uh, at the very end of the millennium that I think we all should peer at. There's, there's a, just a little something in the latter part of the millennium that, that sheds a little bit of light upon the character of God. The Bible tells us when a thousand years are ended, God not being satisfied totally with the fact that men have just lived for him without choice, that he allows Satan to be loosed upon the earth, to go forth to tempt, and at that time he then gives you the power to decide as to whether you want to serve God. And the Bible tells us that he will deceive many. It's hard for me to believe that that people who have lived for God, that the earth that knew nothing but peace for a thousand years, that some would decide not to live for God. But that's what the Bible says. The summary of the story is this, that when the final curtain falls and time will be no more, and all of God's people gather on that everlasting shore, there will not be any feet that walk upon streets of gold that are there by accident. Everybody will be there because they chose to be there. Everybody will be in the presence of God because they chose that direction. seems like that's the way God wanted it to be. 
Didn't want anybody serving him because they were made to serve him. He did not want anybody uh, subservient to him simply because that they uh, were born to be that way and that's just the way it's going to be. But everybody is there by choice. Now, I want to talk to you about faith just for a few moments and we're going to be switching subjects around and we're going to try to bring all of this together. Our faith in God is so very, very important and so very vital. Our faith in God is based upon choice. But basically, faith is something that you manifest. I know that the Bible tells us in Romans, the 12th chapter, that to every man there is given a measure of faith. I hope this week to be able to preach some on, on grace. I've been doing a lot of studying in the scripture about grace. I believe that the grace of God that worketh salvation hath appeared unto all men. The scripture tells us that it has. I also believe that, that faith basically is placed in your heart by God. It's that God consciousness that you have. But it is something that you have to allow it to grow. And sometimes you have to force it to grow based upon good sound judgment that you manifest. Now, I was reading in a science book probably 30 years ago when I was in high school about sound. And uh, something just came to my attention uh, as I was reading. It wasn't stated in the book, but uh, I got, got to thinking about it. See, sound is no more than vibration. So the next day in class, I simply asked this question to our instructor. If sound is vibration... Then theoretically, if a tree fell in the forest and there's nobody around, then it makes absolutely no sound at all. It just sends forth vibrations. And that is 100% true because the sound is made in your brain. The vibrations go and enter into your ear and those little inner ear particles pick that up and they begin to move back and forth. But basically... The sound is made in us. It's not really made by the tree crashing in the forest. It just sends forth vibrations. But the, the sound is made in us. This is also true. Faith is in us and made in us. God's spirit moving upon us and breathing upon us causes us to produce faith. But the faith is actually made in us. I think one of the doctrines that we find in the scripture today that, that uh, not in the scripture, but in our religious world that is in, in uh, uh, defiance of the scripture is, is the doctrine of beliefism. A lot of people are talking about this, especially in charismatic circles and then, of course, in some of the fundamental churches. Uh, one minister wanted to debate me, and I've never been one to get into debating, but was just kind of on a local level, and he decided that he wanted to talk to me about, about his doctrine versus our doctrine. See, we believe in the receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. And he knew that, and he said that we were practicing salvation by works. And uh, he called me up and challenged me and said, you've got to meet with me. 
Well, he did this because he was upset over the fact that his lady's auxiliary leader was in the hospital with one of our sisters, and our sister witnessed to her and actually prayed her through to the baptism of the Holy Ghost in the hospital bed. They were both in the hospital bed. She instructed her about the baptism of the Holy Ghost. This lady, being very fearful for her life, wanted something to die by. Many things are sufficient to live by, but you need something to die by. And she was very serious and honest with God. So this pastor became very angry and upset with me. He called me several times, and finally, I agreed. I said, all right, uh, I, I will agree to meet at this sister's home and... Uh, he set some guidelines, said, you come alone, don't bring any other minister. So we did that. When I got there, he was there already, and he brought a missionary with him, minister. And then, of course, there must have been 15 or 20 people from his church there in the home. And we set some guidelines about uh, the meeting. Uh, what we were going to do was... Uh, the people that were there were going to ask questions first, ask him a question and ask me a question, and then he had time uh, to re, for a rebuttal on what I had stated, and then I had a chance for a rebuttal on what he had, had stated. The very first question that was asked, what is salvation? He said, salvation is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the question was asked me, what is salvation? I said, salvation is Jesus Christ. Well, they asked him why he made this statement. And he went into the scripture about belief. Then they asked me why I made my statement. I said, my statement was made simply because believing is something I do. And I cannot be my redeemer. Believing is something that occurs within me, but salvation is none other than Jesus Christ. It is God. They shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. Faith is produced in me that certainly brings God to me, but my faith is not my salvation. The just shall live by faith, but it's my faith that causes God to move and causes God to breathe upon me. But basically, God is my salvation. Jesus Christ is my salvation. Praise God. Let's give the Lord a big hand clap. Praise God. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. You see, receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost is not salvation. I said receiving it is not. Now the Holy Ghost is salvation, but not receiving it. Well, to make a long story longer, (laughs) would you believe that we debated until 12 o'clock and we set a deadline from 7 to 12, five hours. I got up and left. Five o'clock the next morning, my phone rang, and we baptized everyone in that room that night in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. 
except the preacher and his missionary friend. <laughs> Praise God. And they're all in the church, and now all the children are married, and, and they have children. And we've got one other men in our church today, one of the sons. He's married to a girl in our church, and they have four sons. Hands, a handful, I'll tell you, all of those boys are real boys. Praise God, praise God. Now, I want to change directions and go into something else. The greatest battle that you will face in our present world is this. The greatest battle is the battle to just be spiritual. To always see life from God's point of view. Just to be spiritual. Really, it's not an easy thing because Satan has chosen to attack mankind. Now, Satan knows that he cannot openly attack God. He cannot. He knows that. He also knows that he is the eternally defeated foe. We find evidence in the scripture of that. When Jesus cast out the legions of the man, the demons, in the man at Gadara, they, they spoke out and said have you come to torment us before our time? It appears in the early chapters of the book of Genesis that when there was a, a, a time in which Satan tempted man and man gave himself to that temptation that uh, uh, God pronouncing the curse upon man and upon the world and upon the serpent that there was something in the form of prophecy given and that was that, that Satan was to, naturally his legs would be stripped of him and the serpent and he was to crawl upon his, his belly and he was to eat of the dust of the earth. That was to be his appetite. Man came out of the dust of the earth. Quite frankly, it appears that this was prophecy that was given by God. That is that man came out of the dust of the earth, consequently, because man gave his life and gave his heart over to Satan, that mankind and his body was to be the area in which Satan would seek to destroy. This would be his daily diet until the day in which he was judged. See, the thief cometh not but to kill and to steal and to destroy. He knows that he has already lost the battle. But in an indirect way then, he wars against God by coming to me every day to rob me of my spirituality and rob me of that constant victory. This must forever be before me. Now I want to talk about a few aspects about Satan that will maybe help you to appreciate the light that God has given you through his word and through his son Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 14 the Bible tells us. Verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven O Lucifer. Son of the morning. How art thou cut down from the ground. Which didst weak the nations. For thou hast said in thine heart. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. 
I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will be like the most high. Of course, we know that according to the book of Revelation, that he was indeed cast out of heaven and took with him a third of all of the stars. If you will notice in the scripture that there are three archangels that are made mention of in by name, there may be more than that because uh, I think the scripture is fairly vague as far as the spiritual kingdom of God is concerned that we cannot see with our mortal eyes. We know that there are angels and angels have particular jobs in which they perform. I've not been one to preach a lot about angels, but I do know according to the scripture, the Bible tells us that angels have the ability to protect us, to watch over us. They also have the ability to minister wisdom to us. They have the ability to minister strength to us. In the 15th chapter of the book of Luke, when the rich man died, the Bible says that he went into hell, but when Lazarus died, the angels of God picked up his spirit and escorted him into the presence of the Lord. So angels have uh, different job descriptions according to the scripture. We know that when Jesus was upon the cross, the Bible says that the angels came and ministered to him. And so I do believe that angels do have the ability to come and minister to us. Also, I believe according to the scripture that there must be some form of order or government in which the angels uh, minister. We find the names of three archangels. The archangels obviously have a particular job description. Michael, the Bible tells us, is an archangel. The Bible tells us that Gabriel is an archangel. And then, of course, Lucifer was an archangel. Later on in the scripture, he's defined as Satan, or in the book of Revelation, he is called Apollyon, or Abaddon, which means the destroyer. Now, if you look at verse 12 of Isaiah 14, maybe there is some light shed upon what Lucifer did before he was cast out of heaven. Isaiah 14, the Bible tells us, verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? It appears the scripture is telling us that he was the morning star, or the angel that was responsible for bringing illumination or revelation in the kingdom of God. Now, as I said before, the scripture is, is very vague in certain areas. So I would not want to get into something as far as assumption is concerned that would lead you astray from true Bible teaching. But I know this in the book of uh, Genesis when God begins to Recall about creation. He says the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. And the evening and the morning were the third day. Now, the Hebrew word that's found there is a different word than the word morning that's found in Isaiah 14. In the early chapters of the book of Genesis, it simply means light, natural light as we see light. That is light that comes from the sun. I don't know how long the first day was, but I do believe according to the scripture that it consisted of a period of darkness and a period of light. It could have been the way we measure duration now, a million years, or 
It could have been just a matter of seconds. I don't know. The second day was the same. The evening and the morning were the second day. The evening and the morning were the third day. The evening and the morning were the fourth day. Now, maybe you do not believe this, and perhaps your pastor doesn't teach this, and I'm just throwing this in to, uh, to, to prove something about Lucifer, but I believe from the fourth day on that every day after that was a 24-hour day. Now, you may disagree with that, but the sun and the moon were created in the fourth day to serve as a time for day and night and for our calendar years we have it, or our, uh, our year as we, we call it, 365 and a fourth days. Now, before that, uh, there was just a period of light and a period of darkness. How long it was, I don't know. But I do know the fourth day, when the sun and moon were made, the Bible says that day was there was a period of light and there was a period of darkness. And after that fourth day, the fifth day there was a period of light and there was a period of darkness. Basically what I'm saying is that the 24-hour day was established on the fourth day, leading me to believe that the fifth day and the sixth day then were 24-hour days like we have. Now, the thing about God is that God is not geared or regulated to time. You see, the Bible tells us that in eternity, the holy city, that there will be no need of the sun nor the moon, for God will be the light of that city. Now, the sun and the moon were created by God to give us a way of measuring duration. That's what time is. Time is a way in which we measure duration. After a while, you'll get up and say, well, Brother Grant preached his hour or 45 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes or whatever it'll be. And it'll be measured or calculated on your clock uh, according to the way that the sun comes up and the, the way the sun goes down. This is the reason why that Peter said, why a thousand years with man is like one day with God. Because God lives on this universe, but outside of this universe. And he is not regulated by time. And does not measure duration by the sun and the moon like we measure duration. Lucifer, however, was the son of the morning. And the word morning there does mean light. But it not only means natural light, the word is expanded beyond that. It also means illumination or revelation. So if you are reading something in the scripture and you say, oh, I saw the light. It simply means that a light came on inside of you. A revelation came on inside of you. Something was revealed to you from inside. And may I say this, when it comes to the kingdom of God, I am not ashamed to stand here to say that I believe that everything relative to God is revelatory. Without a revelation, man cannot see his horrible condition. Without a revelation, he'll not know his need of repentance. Without a revelation, he'll not know that he needs to be born of water and of spirit. Without revelation, he'll never walk on streets of glow. It's one of the most important doctrines taught in the Bible. For in him was light, the Bible says. And the light was the life of men. Or in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Praise God. Now, the Bible tells us then that Lucifer was that archangel responsible for bringing revelation to the kingdom of God. 
any of the angels in the kingdom of God, as spiritual as they were, if there was a deficiency, it was Lucifer's job description to bring revelation to them and knowledge of God to them. Little wonder then that he rose up knowing what he knew and said, I want to be equal with God. Make me somehow just like him. He knew all about God, all of his characteristics, all of the aspects of God. Then the Bible tells us in the book of John, the 8th chapter, verse 44, the Bible tells us now Lucifer is known as a liar and is known as the father of all lies. You see, Jesus told us this when he stood up in Luke the 10th chapter, verse 48, and talked about Satan. The Bible tells us that Jesus observed Satan as lightning falling out of heaven. In other words, Satan was kicked out of heaven along with the third part of all the stars. And what happened to him when he left the kingdom of God. The Bible says the light that was in him quickly dissipated. You walk out on a, on a dark summer night and you look up in the sky and all of a sudden you see the falling star. No quicker than you see it, the light is gone. And that's what the scripture is saying to us that when Satan came out of heaven, Jesus observed him as a light that came out of heaven and quickly he lost that light. Now knowing that Satan then was responsible for revelation, he was responsible for shedding knowledge upon God. When he left God's kingdom, that light came, that light left him and he became darkened. And the Bible then tells us that his works are now associated with darkness. You see, he's been on both sides of the fence. He knows all about God. Little wonder then he's a master at lying to us and making us believe things about ourselves and about each other and about God that's not according to knowledge. Jesus, oh God. Oh God. Now this is the reason why that Paul warns us and says, you better be careful when you start trusting in angels and angels alone. He even goes to say, the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. That's talking about Jesus Christ. You see, after Satan was cast out of heaven, and after the light dissipated, after the light uh, was uh, became extinct, then we find in the Scripture... That Jesus Christ came upon the scene. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter 1.19 that Jesus Christ is called the day star. The scripture also refers to him as the bright and the morning star in the book of Revelation. Let's talk about a few aspects about Jesus Christ. He is the day star. It appears that after Satan was cast out of heaven and knowing that mankind then was upon the face of the earth without a witness and without a way to receive knowledge or revelation. God said to himself, No longer will I trust another angelic being to bring light into the world, but I will robe myself 
in human flesh. And I'll come myself because something as sacred as the salvation of man cannot be crushed into the hands of any angel. And so he came himself. I say he came himself. He came himself. When I read the Bible, I look in the book of Matthew. And Matthew says that Jesus Christ was the son of David. And Luke comes along and says not only was Jesus Christ the son of David, but Jesus Christ was the son of Adam, thus linking him with all mankind. But when John wrote his gospel, he went past David and said, He's more than an heir to the throne of David. He's more than a son of Adam. But John says he came out of God. He dates him all the way back to God himself. And he said he was God with us. Bringing light to a lost and to a dying world. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. But something in Scripture happened that no doubt was puzzlement, was a puzzlement to the prophets of the Old Testament in Isaiah 53. I just want to turn there if you'd be so kind as to look along as I read. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one from his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon us the iniquity, uh, upon him rather, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb before his slaughter and as a sheep before his shear is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? Question mark. See, this was a big, big question mark among the Old Testament patriarchs and Old Testament saints. The truth of the matter is, it's quite a, quite a feeling that we have today. My youngest son has a son. His name is Derek. I have a big uh, quarter horse, and I like to ride a lot. He came out, he's only two years old. He came out two days ago and got on the horse behind me. He sits right behind the saddle. And he puts his fingers in my loops like this. And uh, he wants to have ridden with me two hours. He's just sitting up there. Uh, he's found out he can, whenever I jog the horse, he'll go, ah, and the horse goes, he goes, ah, 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 ah. I said, Derek, you ready to get off? He says, nope. Uh, I like for him to be with me, but <clears throat> I guess the, the thing that thrills me the most is when he's in church, everybody says, ha, he looks just like Brother Grant. Really? And my oldest son, John, was in camp meeting about three years ago, and I don't remember what preacher it was, but he said, 
You know, as long as Brother Grant is alive, or as long as John is alive, Brother Grant will be alive. It makes me feel good to know that my son looks just like me. One of the problems in the Old Testament with some of the ladies that prayed and sought God for so long, the mother of Samuel, for example, Hannah, she wept in the presence of God because she had no child. And uh, basically what the scripture is saying is, you know, isn't it only right that a man would want himself reproduced in somebody else? Isn't it only right that you pass this on? Isn't that what life is all about? Isn't this the horrible, horrible mistake that Jephthah made when he didn't have a son, but when he said, I will offer up anything as a burnt offering before the Lord that comes out to meet me? Uh, I do not believe that Jephthah's daughter was offered up as a burnt sacrifice because according to the law of Moses, these were prohibited at that time. Now, it wasn't true when Abraham took Isaac up. The law of Moses had not been given. So the scripture was silent in that case. Um, but once a year the scripture says that her fellows, that is her peers, her friends, her girlfriends, they went up on the mountain and they bewailed her virginity. Why? Because she couldn't keep alive Jephthah's household. Jephthah was a great judge and he brought deliverance to Israel. It doesn't seem fair that somebody as great as him has to die and be placed in a grave and there's nobody to follow him. And that's what the prophet is saying. Somebody as great as the Messiah. Somebody as great as the king of, that was to come to Israel, that would be the true king of the Jews. Does it seem right that before he is married and before he has children that his life be taken away. So the prophet says, Now, it appears that he suffered in the hands of enemies and died prematurely. Now, question mark, who's going to declare his generation? Who's going to keep alive his doctrine? Of course, we look around us today. And we see the miracle of the New Testament church. <laughs> and this is the reason why that the first chapter of the book of John doesn't stop there and just talk about the light. He came into his own, the Bible says, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. Which are born not of blood. Nor the will of man. But of God. And while God restricted the angelic kingdom. And said revelation. Knowledge and light. Would not be in the hands of angels anymore. God has placed it. In the hands of his sons. This is the reason why when you read Revelation 3, 2 and 3. 
The seven churches of Asia, the Bible says, under the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Angel there really means messenger of light. This is the reason why that when Cornelius was in need of Bible salvation, an angel of God came to him. And he said, what must I do? I want to be saved. And the angel, putting it in my own vernacular, says, that's not my job description. I cannot do it. I can't tell it. But there's one named Peter at Joppa. And he's on the housetop of one Simon the Tanner. He will come down here. And he'll give you revelation. He'll give you light. He'll shed this to you. He'll preach it unto you. I can't do it, but he can do it. Why? Because that prerogative was taken out of the hands of the spiritual kingdom. And put in the hands of people that have been born of God. We're all that God has today. Absolutely all that He has. Now, 1 John 4, verse 4, the Bible says, Greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. Now, I want to talk about opposites just for a moment to help you. And we will be closing. We normally think about the opposite of north as what? South. We think of the opposite of east as what? West. We think of the opposite of up as down. We think of the opposite of right as left. We think of the opposite of bitter as sweet. We think of the opposite of sorrow or sadness as joy. Now, the true definition of opposite, brother, simply means that if you take a reference point and you gravitate on one side of the reference point so far, for it to be a true opposite, something has to go back the other way an equal distance. For an example, using zero as a reference point and using ten on the plus scale, the opposite of plus ten is what? Minus ten. Sure. So you're catching on real good. Now, if you use 32 degrees as a reference point for freezing in Fahrenheit, and you go 32 degrees above, 64 degrees, the opposite of 64 degrees is what? Is zero, because we use 32 as a reference point. Now, if you go with Celsius, then zero is a freezing point, so the opposite of 32 is minus 32. Now, the reason why I want to call your attention to this, because we find in the Scripture quite often opposites that are mentioned. And sometimes we get a little bit confused. Now let me just just explain something here. When Isaiah came upon, I say Isaiah spoke of this about John the Baptist. When John the Baptist came upon the scene, he was to take the the exalted hills and he was to take the valleys and he was to make a straight path that leads to God. He was to take the crooked paths and straighten them out. Now that path that leads to God is the reference point. In other words, Calvary is the reference point of all of life. It is. So everything will be judged from that reference point, from Calvary. Now, the problem that John had in his day was that there were a lot of self-righteous Pharisees.
Jews that really thought they had a problem very similar to what Satan had. I this and I this and I this. See, they thought they were their own redeemer. They were very proud. However, on the opposite side of that, there were a group of people that had no self-esteem at all. They thought little or nothing of themselves. Now, quite often when we look at pride, we think the opposite of pride is humility. But uh, that's not true in the Scripture. Uh, According to the Scripture, the opposite of pride is shame. Now, let me just explain this. The opposite of pride is not humility. The opposite of pride is shame. Now, both have their roots in selfishness. Both have their roots in selfishness. I guess I could explain it so you could understand it like this. One man drives this bright, shiny, new white Cadillac up to church, and he puts it in the first stall and stands out beside it in a brand-new suit, making sure that everybody comes in sees it. The next man driving in sees his car, and knowing what car he has, so he drives his old bucket of bolts and nuts and rust around on the backside so that nobody can see it. Wouldn't you agree that they really both had the same problem? See? They really both had the same problem. See? Shame comes as a result of the judgments of God upon you. But shame does not save you. It does not save you. So what John was supposed to do in his day, and this was a very difficult thing, he was to take the axe and lay it at the root of the tree of selfishness. Some people were going to fall, and some were going to be picked up. Israel had such a vast contrast. So many people were self-righteous, and so many people were proud, but they had their prostitutes, and they had their problems. Jesus Christ wrote in the sand and said, Now where are your accusers? I have none. He said, Neither do I accuse you. But he said, Go and sin no more. This woman, they dragged. She was shameful. She wasn't saved as a result of shame. Now, basically what I'm saying is that when a man will judge himself, when he will look upon himself and judge himself, he puts himself on ground zero, the reference point. And here at the reference point, that's the road of humility. Jesus talks about the straight and the narrow. If any man will fall upon the rock, he shall be broken. That's what humility is all about. But upon whom the rock shall fall, it shall grind into powder. That's what shame is all about. If a man exalt himself, he shall be abased. That's what shame is all about. But if a man will humble himself, he shall be exalted God then will lift him up what are you trying to say brother Grant I said all of that to say that quite often we have to look at true opposites we know that the opposite of joy is sadness we also know that the opposite of bitter is sweet but we also know that there are some measures of joy that in no way could be the opposite of some measures of sadness and vice versa For an example, if somebody came in here and they just received word that some lost loved one that they had was taken out into eternity in a car wreck, 
And we gather around that individual and oh my, we begin to, we begin to, to somehow pray with that person and we saw that person convulsing and, and, and that person in such pain and mental anguish. Now, if you went out in the hallway and you saw a young man walk up to a, a sweetheart and give her a stick of gum and she got a big smile, certainly she's happy, she's joyful, but do you think that the joy that she is experiencing is a true opposite of the sadness that you saw? No, no, it, it really isn't. So we know that there are measures of joy. And there are measures of sadness, and some, in many cases you cannot properly equate them. Now what are you trying to say, Brother Grant? I'm trying to say this. When we look at the Scripture and the Bible says, Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And if God be for us, who can be against us? I'm basically saying that when we look at God sometimes, we think the opposite of God is Satan. Not so, my friend. Not so. The Bible does not declare it to be that way. The Bible says in Isaiah, the 40th chapter, verse 25, To whom then will you liken him, or who shall be his equal, saith the Lord, the Holy One? He has no opposite at all, none whatsoever. In fact, when God cast Satan out of heaven, my friend, he didn't war against him. He didn't even pick up a finger. The Bible says that he looked to Michael and the archangels and said, you take care of him. And the Bible says in the book of Revelation that Michael and the archangels warred against Satan and cast him out. And the reason why that God has never lost a battle is because he has no opposite. Absolutely no opposite. Praise God. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Listen to what the scripture has to say here in Isaiah the 40th chapter verse 17. All nations before him are as nothing, and they that are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. Less than nothing, that simply means that they went into a place of shame. They went back and digressed back on the other side of the reference point. I want you to stand with me at this time. I summarize by saying this. I want to read from Galatians 5. Oh, Mahata. I feel the presence of the Lord here. I believe that God has something great for somebody here tonight. I say God has something great for somebody here tonight. Do you believe that and will you accept that? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Now, this is the character of God. This is what God is. Against such there is no law. You know what against such there is no law really means? It means that there is no way that it can be measured. That in essence God cannot be measured from any reference point. 
The only place that you can relate to God is at Calvary. You meet Him on the straight and the narrow, the humble road. But when He exalts you and gives you the baptism of the Holy Ghost, somebody said, Peter, tell us about it. Well, he thought about all the sadness that had come to Satan. And you see, the Bible never says that there is a sadness that cannot be measured. It will be measured. You see, Satan and all of his works will be judged. And the only way judgment can occur is that from a given point, it can be measured. But somebody said, tell us about the Holy Ghost. He said, well, folks, it, 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 it's, it's, it's like this. It's joy. Unspeakable and full of glory. It cannot be measured. It can't even be talked about. you peace that passes all understanding so it doesn't make any difference my friend how much confusion that Satan has put you in the peace of God that passes all understanding can be granted to you tonight it makes no difference how bitter you are God has sweetness that will swallow it up. Because it can never be equal. Or an opposite. To the sweetness of God. What are you saying brother Greg? There's never a problem too big for him. There's never an enemy too strong. There's never a devil that lies. That he can't give light in. Who shall stand against him? If God be for me. Who? Who? Hello, Shandarahati Babahata Who can be against me? For who is his equal? Oh, hallelujah. Oh, there is peace that you can have. There is love that you can experience. There is joy that you can take home with you. There is a God that would be your God that will help you in all of life's situations. I want to open this altar. Whatever your problem is, come on right now. We have saints throughout the building and preachers that be glad to come and lay hands on you. A disease, a sickness, you can take care of that. Frustration and confusion, oh, he's a master at that. Come on right now, who will step out?
can do it for you right now. Jesus.